0: Welcome to our podcast series, Who's Universal?, which we'll be hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference taking place in the 5th and 6th of March, 2021, at the House of Culture of It It is co-organized together with Anna teixeira Pinto and Anselm Franke. My name is Kader Atia. Our guest today is Françoise Vergès. Francoise Vergès is a political scientist, historian, and feminist. She has written extensively on memories of slavery as a counter hegemonic narrative, Franz Fanon Psychoanalysis, MS Césaire, Coloniality of Power and Feminism, and the Postcolonial Museum. Among her latest publications is Le Ventre des Femmes from 2017 with its English translation, The Worms of Women, Race, Capital Feminism that came out recently with Duke University Press in 2020. Françoise Vergès also collaborated with filmmakers and artists on numerous occasions. For example, for Documenta 11 or the 2012 Paris Triennale where she organized the program The Slave in Le Louvre, An Invisible Humanity. Okay, Françoise, I'm very delighted to run this uh, interview, which uh, starts with this first question. Why is universalism still so appealing and so at a unilateral level of society, even in the circles of racialized activists?
1: well uh, first uh, uh, good afternoon i'm also very delighted to contribute to that podcast and thank you to the team um yeah i mean the question is very important because i'm always interested of you know the consent how consent is fabricated even to ideas and practices that are harmful to us you know so i i'm not kept into a binary connection with the dominant person with you know the powerful and saying why do they do that I'm trying to understand why they do that I have to understand why we do it why we are effectively still seduced by universalism or certain idea of liberal democracy that have been shown that they are not democratic at all or you know some certain idea of heroism certain heroism certain masculinism I mean what is seducing uh, seductive about it I would say universalism can be, I mean, Western, as understood by the West, of course, when we are talking about that form of universalism, is still very subjective because, I mean, there is this idea of, you know, uh, supposedly of the human, of humanity behind it, of, you know, a certain unity, that we are united, we are all together. And so it's, it's very subjective. It's still seductive. Remember also how a lot of uh, people, a lot of the elite sometime in the colony were seduced by the colonizer when they arrived by their technology, by their uh, images, but their capacity of doing things. There was a, a certain fascination and there is still a fascination. Power produce images, representation, uh, rhetoric discourses. They are smart also. I mean, Western universalism does not arrive only by the gun. It arrives also by images, seductive images, seductive representation. It even offers somewhat a certain inclusion in its you know, space for the racialized person, for the non-white woman, man, for the queer, for the indigenous person. It can offer small places, a small place, and then not uh, it has also been able through all this t- century to construct a certain idea of beauty of what is what is reasonable, what is scientific that we nonetheless have been you know programmed to love also to to admire And so the the incre- the work the incredible effort that we have to do to detach ourselves to delink to delink ourselves from this power is absolutely for me very important. As long as we don't recognize also the power of seduction and we see it just as a, let's say, just as, you know, abstract word and image that we can beat, oh, that's the West, you know, like we don't care. We don't pay attention to the way it has insinuated in our mind, in our way of thinking, in even our way of not. Dismissing certain ideas or dismissing certain views. So yeah, it's a very, for me, important. Uh, dropping the subjection of of power is for me absolutely a part and parcel of the uh, work of decolonization that we have to make.
0: Thank you, Françoise. The next question is: speaking of universalism it is still believed that the anti-colonial movements were nationalist movements, whereas there has been an internationalization of these movements, as shown by the Bandung Conference, for instance. Should yesterday's anti-colonialism and today's decolonial thinking thought be universal
1: Yes, I think so. Yeah, that is a very good question. I do think that we have to look at the idea. What I say, I mean, following philosopher Caribbean philosopher Sylvia Winter, she says the idea that the West brought was the idea of men, white, white male body. But the white male body, not the body of the peasant, of the, of the poor person, of the worker, the idea of the bourgeois. The male bourgeois, white man, and we can discuss about how it's still working. That body is still very powerful. versus the idea of the human, and the human has not is yet to be accomplished, is yet to be really fully there. We don't have an idea of the human fully. We still have an idea of the man. So this idea of the human started in the South what we call the global south. started with the enslaved, the Asian revolution, when the version revolution were saying, Tut mun mun, which in, you know, in Creole, which means everyone is a person. I mean, we are all together. It was this idea that we are all created equal, but they were saying it from a point of people who have been said outside of humanity. So they had already understood a certain, you know, form of universality or, you know, pluri- pluriversality, as we say today. And effectively and as you say, this continue all through. And if we look at more, you know more recent uh, uh, history, the story of the second, high, I mean, starting even in nineteen twenty, with all this meeting, Afro meeting, you know, African meeting in London or Liverpool, or even of course the nineteen forty six uh, meeting at the Sorbonne of uh, of you know black artists and writers. Uh, or, if effectively, the Bandung conference, the idea of the Tricontinental, And even even when we were already the post-colonial state, we were already becoming authoritarian. Even the festival of Alger, the festival in Alger was an extremely important. I mean, this idea that all something else existed. And also outside of the north-south axis, again, uh, outside of this binary, there was a possibility of south-south connection. There was a the commonality. And there was something that could be said from there that will transform this idea of the universal and that will bring, effectively. because for me, we have to start from those who are fabricated as the most vulnerable and the most precarious because they carry the idea. I mean, they have been put outside of humanity. We could think about migrant refugee exile today, but we can see indigenous people, Black Lives Matter, all these things. From that, we have this idea of humanity that it's coming from those, those who are absolutely put outside of this idea. But again, to say also more about what you say, I think it's very important also for us to bring back that history. When I say for us, we cannot, again, we have to delink from the West. We have to delink from their way of saying, you know, tradition versus modernity or blah, blah, blah. We have to delink, we have to see how we are for, you know, for a century, been thinking, been um, elaborating theory of living together and living with our environment that are not effective. and this South connection are very beautiful connection in terms of art, in terms of culture. When you think that you had Indonesian uh, uh, review in the 1950, 1960 dialogue, we were translating poem by Abdel- Abdelkader Katibi that circulation is for me absolutely central and has to be brought back. So it's not, oh, the West is not looking, but it's not, you know, making a space for us, their museum don't, let them, let them be. Let's do our, let's delink, let's do our own story. And the South connection historically from the place of Timbuntu, the Timontu University, the connection with the University of Fes and Meknes, and then we will go to Niger, and again to Lake Cairo, and back, and that circulation of the discussion, philosophical discussion, artistic circulation that we are already there, and we can think further east, of course, has always been there. The connection between Africa and Asia is, is century old within Africa itself. And, of course, between you know, Africa and its, its margin, you know, with all this island. So there are incredible cartography of a South-South connection to this day uh, that have to be uh, not only effectively retrieved, but uh,
0: have to constitute a source of thought and inspiration. How do you explain the fact that the patriarchal order of things emanates from universalism? which, from its conception by the philosophy of the Enlightenment to the political powers, has refused to gender the human subject.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I mean, Europe itself, you know, to impose its, its own idea of universalism, of European universalism, uh, both crush on its soil, you know, the, the what they say, the mad, uh, the vagabond, uh, the gypsy, the Roma, the witches, the, you know, everyone was outside of the bourgeois man order. It was very important to impose also. We, we should not forget that Europe, I mean, the idea of Europe, idea, Europe as an identity was also built on the, on disparition on its soil of any dissident voices. Of, you know, uh, destroying the commons, destroying any kind of knowledge that will be outside. I mean, we know uh, women's science, you know, okay, they were called witch to effectively reinforce the patriarchal power of medical men. So, this, they brought it when they colonized. They brought it with them. You know, they had already, I mean, Europe was anti Semitic already, was anti Gypsies, was, I mean, had gone through the Reconquista, what we call the, what Spain called the Reconquista, which the Christian in position. So it was erasing already on its own soil an history that was much more complicated and complex. To, to build Europe as white men and Christian. And it brought that effectively, and it imposed its own idea of gender, that the binary, that it was, uh, uh, you know, it was biology that make you, you know, uh, what you own. And we know they destroy, they criminalize homosexuality, they criminalize a uh, different way of so of making family. You know, of making kidship. the family has to be mom, dad, and the mom patriarchal power effectively, the woman and the. Ch- so even the father was no longer the father i mean i i sometimes I think okay we should also give new meaning to the notion of fatherhood you know because it's it's father is absolutely connected i mean assimilated with patriarchy but you can have fatherhood outside of patriarchy you i mean if we think thinking um terms, kind of term you know that the the person who occupy Uh, the the space of a a certain fatherhood, you know, and that doesn't have to be your biological father or man or whatever, but a certain uh, space that, you know, that matter for us as a child. And uh, we know society invented multiple forms of organising that and that Europe imposed. And again, to your question about gender, it's very important to remember that whether colonial slavery or colonialism both gendered very much the society, they colonized or enslaved, and degender them. What I mean by that, for instance, enslaved women were treated like men. They had to work as hard, as long, 14 hours. They were, they were tortured and maimed and punished like men. There was no distinction. In the meantime, the white woman was constructed as uh, weak, uh, she couldn't stand the, the heat. She was, you know, she was very fragile. So the fragility of woman was also in contrast with the black woman that could be, you know, work to the end and could, you know, give birth in a corner of the plantation. And that went on also with colonialism. One of the case very important is all the school of orientalism with its obsession of discovering the secret of the Muslim woman, something was hidden and the colon, the colonizer had to discover that hidden, you know, secret. And the key to unlock that secret will open the Muslim society. And we see it, you know, even translated today. So this idea of gender as a key to open things and at at the same time to repress was part of the European colonialism, slavery and post-slavery period. So we have to reimagine those
0: plural and do you think that there is an anti-colonial feminism that has been obscured in the universality of anti-colonial movement as can be seen in the images of the Bandung conference where men are omnipresent and which therefore reproduces that what Western universalism has imposed on the minds of colonized or is it peculiar to the social, cultural, and religious structure of these countries to leave no room for women in political debate and representation?
1: I would say perhaps the answer will be uh, will be more, uh, pr- there will be many answers, not just one answer to that. When I see the picture, the picture of the Bandung Conference, they're both only men, but they also represent a certain masculinity, also contrasting to the white masculinity that could appear in europe at the time or when you will sing all the leaders of the west the men appear in their clothing right they will appear maybe we are saying you know, they arrived and chroma that was already a presentation of a certain masculinity that was not quite white masculinity so of course Not many women, but at the same time, I want to complexify this idea of, you know, these men from the south. They were beautiful, they were powerful, and it was a certain representation of the masculinity that was not, I mean, at the same time, if you are looking at the United Nations, you will see only white men with all, you know, black suits, right? So that's one thing. On the other, on the other hand, there is also what has been erased: that the Bandung Conference was prepared already by 1946, 1947 by meeting of women in the South. In in Delhi, there was a big meeting. I mean, women were very, very active in producing Bandung and in being there. In fact, at Bandung, uh, they, I mean, we we did not we don't hear them, but they were there as secretary or even perhaps also as thinker, but in the background. And that I would say it was both uh, uh, the way in which the West write history, because they want just to see the men. That's, you know, I don't want to see that there has been feminism in the south for you know centuries. And at the same time, certainly, I want to give perhaps credit to this man a certain tactical response. To what was the West at the start, which was effectively very masculinistic, and it would have been. But let's not forget that Nkrumah organized the first uh, African women conference. I mean, hosted the first African women conference in A- in Accra. But they were, they, it was complicated, you know. Women were were marginalized. In the society, as you say, but not as marginalized as they were in the West. In fact, you know, they were they they spoke, we are them, they wrote, they so it's there is a history of the oppression of women in the South, and I'm not denying it, right? I'm not saying, but I would say much, especially in that moment that you are talking about, especially in that moment of anti-colonial struggle for independence, that moment between late 40s to the mid 60s, I would say it's much more complicated. It's more complicated I see. We should be careful not to put the Western feminist uh, uh, you know, uh, for a, a method of analysis on that. This men, don't forget that men were constantly humiliated by the white men. There was something also uh, in that uh, com- more complex uh, black feminists or indigenous or feminists of the south so of looking at at the men and saying, "Okay, we don't want your machismo, Okay, We don't want yours. But we're not going to accept white uh, patriarchal love. We're not going to be saved by white men
0: or white women. You published the book Decolonial Feminism. Do you consider that feminism, in the broadest sense of the word and the Western concept, is a derivative of universalism? It
1: can be. It can be. Let's not. I mean, there is, yeah, white feminism, Western feminism is, is a branch. And today is, is not only a branch because uh, we should not uh, um, overestimate the role of feminism for colonization, during colonization. Women were for colonization, they were for slavery, but they were not as strong into the making of the philosophy and the practice because they were, but they were there. They supported, you know, they were slave owners, plantation owners, and so on. But, uh, it, it played a very more important role since I will say the late 1990s and 2000 in the 21st century. Feminism as as a, as an arm as really uh, of neoliberalism and and Western universalism. I mean th- that feminism say all women are equal. You know, I mean again this universalism not taking into account that no not all women are equal. When women wanted to be equal. In, in the West, and they were not equal, they had to fight, they were absolutely, of course, oppressed. I'm not, you know, adding that, but they don't want to see that at the same time, uh, the progress that they were able to make, and we agree with this progress, they were made also on the back, on the exploitation of black and brown women, and that's it's very clear, it's very clear throughout the century. So, there is, I mean, I, I will even say. I will even dare to say that feminism is much more universal than uh, m- uh, serve much more universalism than than uh, than universalism per se. I, I will say that in fact, feminism is much more because um, it has been able to protect itself from accusation of of racism much more than. Uh, uh, universalism brought by men, I would
0: say. And in, in in a little bit in the continuity of uh, this question, Françoise and our uh, dialogue, I'm adding this: Is the connection that the universalism of the Enlightenment has with the feminine, with the feminine uh, gender, comparable with, to the connection that the feminism of the Enlightenment has with the equality of rights between human beings, such as for example? Olympe de Gouges, who fought against slavery, but was against equality of rights.
1: Yeah, that's very, very... I mean, there is something that we have to understand how sometimes the West was for liberty, but not equality. I mean, the idea of of liberty could be done, you know, for instance, even Algeria could be independent. But that did not mean that Algerians were equal. Let's not go that far, right? (laughs) Let's not go that far. And, And also Senegalese can be free, but equal, Place, you know? So there is something that we have to see between liberty and equality that was not, is never resolved. And equality is much more difficult for, a Russian, you know, a Russian West, you know, for the white West. And um, so the, the idea, because the idea of liberty is also very seductive. Everyone, everyone wants to be free. And freedom is a very powerful aspiration, desire that put people. But it's always, for instance, if we look at the enslaved or the colonized, and today, with, you know, subaltern and uh, decolonial activists, it's always connected with equality. It's not just we want to be free. Because freedom, let's also see in terms of a philosophy, had been very much also captured by the far right, you know, to be free of everything to be my own person, to be my own individual. I don't want even the law of the state. I want to have my weapon and defend my family, and I am, am you know, like the liberty, liberty taken as an absolute, absolute uh, field of of existence. Equality, uh, and so de Gouge was against slavery, but that did not mean she felt equal to, I mean, that black women were equal to her. In her writing, she's she in a famous play um, in which there was a couple of slaves, of uh, enslaved slaves, they save a couple of white war, well, you know, shipwreck, whatever. And it's the white woman who who save, she's touched she feels generous. Her father is the governor of the island. She go to see the governor and she say, please give freedom to, to my two slaves. And they get freedom. So it's again, the white savior syndrome. So uh, it's it's as long as this question of uh, universalism taken as, in, in fact, not looking the way in which enlightenment is also emerged in a Europe in 18th century, which want to get away with de- divine right and absolute monarchy. And we agree with that. But this is also the century where you have the highest rate of deportation of Africans. 16th, 17th century is 30 to 40,000 per year. 18th century would be 70 to 90,000 per year of African deported. So the century of the Enlightenment is also the century where slave trade is at its highest. How do we understand this? You know, How do we understand this uh, contradiction? How do we understand that France, in France, which first abolished slavery in 1794, Napoleon reestablished it in 1802, a country, France, the country of the right of man, as she called itself. how do we understand that 1848, when uh, France abolished slavery, it's also the same government that declared Algeria would be department, French department, and inaugurates by that a new period of colonization, the post-slavery colonization, where the black code will be followed by the code and so on and so forth. So we have also to, and we could look at Britain for that. So we have to look at this you know, entanglement of the idea that the West say to be carried liberty, fraternity, equality, and the way it always stop. It's stopped by racism. Racism stop the full application of that, of that principle. And this is why I go back always to the Asian Revolution, which was anti-slavery, anti-colonial, anti-racist. It was not yet a feminist revolution, but it was already history. And this was the only revolution of the Enlightenment that was still. You never hear about the Asian Revolution on the same level than the French, American, and, and English Revolution. It's never put on the same level of of universalism and enlightenment.
0: This is a question following our discussion, which continue. your last answer. You can elaborate it shortly, but I think it's important. You were telling me that during slavery, women were both gendered and non-gendered. They were treated violently twice. They were the universal slave. They worked hard in the plantation, and their bodies were exploited by the mat- patriarchal machinery. This image has remained as the double punishment of racialized women remained in the mind of Western societies? C'est une question, la fin, question. I know that you've been working also a lot with a uh, uh, worker uh, woman uh, in hotel in Paris who was striking f- for more than a year now.
1: Yeah, it's very important to see. Yeah, I mean, this is, a, uh, I mean, it, it again, you know, your question, I mean, there are so many threads. Uh, uh, let, let's take let's take the more the twentieth century. You know, not to. I mean, during slavery, effectively, women, uh, black women, where I mean, indigenous women to be at, at the beginning in the Americas and Caribbean, and then black women, where were I mean, were killed. You know, their 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 life did not matter at all. Men and women, women were punished as harshly as men, but really, they were you know. Uh, mutilated uh, and and especially in united states um, they did what we call the slave breeding industry they reproduced slave on their soil so women black women were raped as soon as a young woman and it's not a, we should not even say woman as soon as a young girl could bear children she was raped so you see in the archive you find in the archive a 20-year-old woman, she has already had like 12 children. So she's raped systematically in so, on some plantation. She's raped, she gives birth. She's raped six weeks later to be pregnant again. She's raped either by the master or by some white men, or she's a, a black man is forced to have sexual intercourse with her. So the, the Roman women were capital. The black woman was a capital. Women who were pregnant were sold, you know. More, I mean, the the value was higher because two slaves were sold, the future slave. A woman, a black woman who who was uh, pregnant, the owner could uh, borrow money from the future slave. You know, could say. Could get credit. You don't get the oh. I'm going to have one, so I can borrow money. Could already sell, you know, as a debt, for instance. Could say, oh, but I have a slave. I'm going to be born. I'm not going to give you to, and I will pay my debt. It's capital. This has object, like effectively a table. You know, uh, it's really um, this is this is being said like that when we say oh, and uh, uh, slave were object, but we don't understand perhaps enough what that mean? because it meant really that you did not matter that no family was possible no kinship was possible and children were not children either so at the moment when even 18th century I remember rousseau remembers with the children there was an interest a beginning of interest on in the education of children and even the psychology of children the love which is needed that the nurturing of the child already emerged the idea of childhood, even if it takes some time, it emerged. Entire people were forbidden to be children. They were born, not children, they were born and or colonized. And they could be sent to work at four, six years old. And at the same time, in Europe also, you did that children sent to work. But there was a progress, the law of progress, the people fighting for childhood to be protected was also very much so, 18th, 19th century. Whereas, and uh, you know, because you're from Algeria, you know that children in Algeria, you know, when the war of independence, the condition of Arab and Berber children, of Algerian children, of children, living on the soil was forbidden. Childhood was forbidden. Motherhood was forbidden. Being a woman was forbidden. Being a man was forbidden. And women were capital. But if we jump to the 20th century, let's remember that in the 1960s already, the IMF and the World Bank and other and Western state start to listen to the women's liberation movement and women say, we want to go to work. We don't want to be domestic. We don't want to have just, you know, realize our life in the home. To allow that and to appease this struggle, they will organize the incredible migration of black and brown women from the South, from North Africa and the Caribbean to work as domestic, to work as nurses, as, you know, as uh, uh, keep, uh, you know, taking care of the children and so on. So we see that white women, that black and brown, I mean, as we say in English, black and brown, has always been the bodies on which progress and freedom and that the fight for equality of rights among white women can be made. Their life is good. Their life can be better, better, because other women are exploited. Their comfort, their good life rests on this. And on top of it, the work is rationalized. That is, this, this woman would be always underpaid, their work will be underqualified. Uh, women will be without papers, so they can be all, uh, even more exploited. So there is really a, a racialization within what we can call women of, you know, the place of women. So, uh, yes, there is, I mean, the, the idea of gender equality is uh, as soon as you question equality for women and the gender of women, you see the lie, the lie, because you have capitalism. And capitalism and imperialism are just exploitation of people of the global south.
0: I was uh, thinking while listening about uh, the word, the Greek word used by Platon called pharmakon, which is both the remedy and the poison. And I have a question uh, regarding this and the century of Enlightenment, which seems, uh, which promises of the Enlightenment are being turned upside down and becoming become poisonous today. A troubled society always seeks the reason for its misfortune by designating a scapegoat. This is what happened in Europe for centuries against the Jews, reaching its climax in the irreparable crime of the Holocaust. How do you explain that the European project, which is struggling to find a union because of different languages and cultures, is currently being rebuilt on a fascist, islamophobic and anti-Semitic basis.
1: This long history of uh, what Cedric Robinson has, has called racial capitalism, this long history has to be effectively put to light, you know, and uh, really and being worked. There was no capitalism on onezan, patriarchy there, and racism somewhere, you know floating around. They are absolutely untimely. There is no capitalism without racism. Racism is about exploitation, domination. It's about transforming people into objects, into subhuman. It's about what Ruth Wilson Gilmore has called fabrication of vulnerability to premature death that we saw again during the pandemic. Who died? The poor, the racialized. Anti-Semitism is very, is very, well, European is, is anchor. And we see it constantly, you know, brought back. Even in country, when you have less and less Jews, it's so powerful. So the power of this ideology, of racist ideology, that we know you don't need people, you don't need migrants, you don't need Muslims, you don't need Black people to be racist. We have, it's very important to understand. And Europe has not done any work of decolonization of itself, because Europe still thinks that decolonization are for the colonized over there, right? Of course, and the colon- and you know people in Algeria, Mali, Senegal, Indonesia, they're going to do what they have to do, right or wrong, but it's their business, right? But the West has never considered that it has to decolonize. Europe has never considered. And then if we look at what MSR called the return effect in discourse of, on colonialism, when he said Europe is indefensible. Because you know, what Europe has been doing, and also he followed up by saying what Europe has been doing everywhere. And never never raise a scandal. They could kill Malagasy, they could kill Vietnamese, they could kill, you know, African, no problem. That did not, you know, you did not hear a scandal. It became a scandal, and this is why certainly discourse on colonialism is not the central text of Aimé Césaire, which is being, you know, discussed, is a, that was narcissism, the return effect, and it became a scandal because white men did it to white men, for him it's men. So this return effect that that uh, uh, Césaire was talking about, we could look how effectively you cannot have racial laws over there, and it's not coming back. Even instituting itself in progressive ideology, in ideology of emancipation, even you know. So to think how race was so powerful to the extent that it penetrated, that effectively it 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 sent Europe to totally what Caesar called savagery and sauvagement, and that you know, that Europe would become, you know, its own savagery, and this was not a savage over there. Europe was producing its own monster. The monsters doesn't come from outside. The monster is there. So the work of decolonization, uh, also the fight against anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and anti-blackness, and also the depatriarchalization. How you depatriarchalize? When we look at the Parliament of Europe, and so on, we just see men. When we look at the leaders in Europe, you just see men. And. Pat- Patriarchy in Hungary, in Poland, in Italy. I mean, the worst of patriarchal men, you know, like absolutely. And Macron is another kind. So, effectively, the huge work to be done in Europe, the really deep, deep work, is to work that racism does not come from the outside, is not about some bad people. It's there. It's there in the 16th century, 17th, 15th century, with the pogrom against the Jews. And also the decision that indigenous people and black people could be unsafe. And today I will say that Europe, a certain idea of Europe reconstitutes itself constantly against Muslims. It's almost like to be, to be a full European, you have to show yourself Islamophobic. That will, you know, give you your identity. Identity of Europe is really based today on Islamophobia, really deeply. Deeply in France, in Australia, in Germany, in Denmark, everywhere, the obsession, especially with women, with the veiled woman, with the Muslim woman, is usually is is reconstituting Europe. Every time that Europe does not know what she what it is, oh, there's going to be a story about some Muslim, and she can reconstitute itself around that. You know, it's it's certain as as a, it's it's anti-blackness in the United States. You know, every time suddenly uh, United States reconstituted itself. I mean, that was the famous the birth of a nation, right? The birth of a nation was about lynching. Lynching became the foundation of that nation. In Europe, I will say, uh, Islamophobia is today uh, the the effective the reference through which it's it constantly reconstituted itself as Europe. And um, and it's it's not, it's more than a, a scapegoat. We know, for instance, the lies, the, uh, the corn story of where migrant men had attacked white women and finally after an inquiry, it shows in France, the famous cafe in the banlieue, which were forbidden to women. And then you finally, you find that there was no things about that. Uh, the famous, you know, uh, 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 gang rape that were happening constantly with young Arab and young men uh, in the in the basement of the of the banlieue. We realize that you know if it, they, they were more talk about that. There is really a construction today, the reconstruction of Europe as white, and Christian, and having the best value of the world, the famous human value. I mean, Europe will be by nature naturally the soil of human value. Human value are associated with Europe and Europe associated with human value. You will never hear that African uh, culture are associated with human value or Asian or or South American or Central American. No, it's Europe. So there is also this construction of where is uh, almost the natural growth of human rights is in Europe. And all the rest, and especially Muslim society, are by nature hostile to this fight. And then the Muslim world is taken as a whole, like there is, like you know, all this is this kind of a mass. Is a mass, and the idea of a mass is a very fascist idea. You know that you cannot distinguish uh, those who the, the monarchy in Saudi Arabia from you know uh, uh, a Moroccan fighting. Uh, for you know, in solidarity with migrant workers, for instance, you know, all these are together, you know, like in, in a mass. Or uh, Islamic feminism uh, will not be, you know, uh, white feminism will not even consider it because it cannot. You cannot have fem- you, you cannot have feminism, which will be Islamic, Islamic, or you know, Muslim feminism. So there is a constant idea of who, uh, who really, by nature, is on the side of freedom. And human rights and the rest of the world have to be taught as to be civilized because they don't know and this is still in the 21st century we still see it the white savior things is always there the lesson constantly being given to country and you know about equality and when you realize that in in europe women are not paid equality to men women i mean even white women are you know in the are less paid than white men i mean what are we talking about it's a lie. I mean, the, the femicide is very high, very high in Europe, not less than in a you know, country. The violence against women, against queer, against gay is also very high in Europe.
0: Yeah, you, you said that. Uh, I really like also this uh, reference uh, to universalism as a machine that crushes people, people with mental illnesses, children, disabled people. Women. As you explained in a novel uh, by Toni Morrison, she describes that the very poor white whites lived with the black, but they were told by the white, I guess, you are white, that's what saves you, to divide them from the black. I was wondering, because uh, I think we need to go slowly into capitalism. Is universalism the pharmacon of capitalism? The the remedy and the poison?
1: Well I will say yes, Capital. I mean the the how universalism is a poison of, of capitalism by this idea against of man rather than that you that the human and that it this follow from that follow a lot of, of, of things. I mean of course the transformation of of people into object, but we, you know, uh, colonise and enslave people, but we talk about that. But it's also by imposing a way of looking at the world, you know, of, through the image. We know the, the, the role that the image play for colonisation, of representing the other people, you know, as such, and was part, very important part of, you know, resting, I mean, founding power, I mean, you, you know, uh, resting power. But again, also, I was thinking, the, I, I say, about the psychic dimension and that we have, I think, to, to work again the field that we are opened by Fanon, by the fan, uh called Fan Dakar, in Dakar, in Accra, all this psychoanalysis from the south, you know, of looking in which way capitalism, racism, colonialism, slavery, had also damaged the psyche. They are not just about exploitation of the body, and, you know, of the wealth. It's also the psychic, bringing shame, bringing a certain idea that we don't deserve to live, we don't deserve to be this, and so on. But how do we work that not through just representation, not through the compensation of representing ourselves Well, you know, they have not represented us well, so we're going to represent it as well? How do we get out of that, delink also this idea of representation as the only form? Of through which we're going to be repaired. How also, so again, you know, how um, we, we, we delink from that. But also, I was thinking how it's a pretend universalism, pretend equality, and we don't, we know that there is no equality at birth. And I was talking about the, the, fact, the breathing, the breathing exercise, you know, as part also of reparation. How are we going to relearn to breathe? Because capitalism is about uh, destroying breathing. Um, I mean, the mine, from the beginning, and enslavement, the mine, we are killing the land of people, the mine, the silver, Potosi, that you know, built the wealth of Europe. And then everything is about forbidding people to breathe. Even, you know, the enslaved that were dancing on their mouth. Um, I mean, everything is about not people breathing the polluted hair today. The fire, the huge fire made so we can have palm oil plantation or the plantation that also attack the lungs. So this is invisible. It's an invisible poison. You don't really see the poison. So how also we look at the invisible poison, not just the visible one, not just, for instance, the amount of garbage in which we see poor people, that's important. But how do we look at the invisible uh, and poison, especially through the air? And how we learn to breathe again and breathing become a political right, not just a biological necessity, but a political right against capitalism that is destroying our lungs and the lungs of the planet. So from that, how do we work? Effectively, for me, it's always we can, how do we connect all this together? How do we connect breathing with uh, reparation of the psyche, with reparation of the planet, with reparation of family kinship ties? How we reimagine form of, you know, community and family together and family, not the heteropatriarchal way. So to find in which way the poison of universalism we're going to learn to find, perhaps, from the universalism, some antiviral form that will kill this uh, poison.
0: I have uh, uh, the last question, Françoise, which has to do with um, the world we are living in today. And continue this reflection on universalism has a, a structure of imposed on on the human societies. Universalism has imposed itself on all organs of European society and beyond. How do you think that the academic institution, the university, embodies the structures of state control over people? I'm thinking here about the correlation between French academia and the government who advocate a universalism against decolonial thinking that it has Included into its separatist project.
1: The government, the left and right uh, in France, are afraid of social science and human sciences. Remember that the, the uh, socialist prime minister, Manuel Valls, said, explain is to excuse. You know, when he was explained the social uh, 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 uprising in the banlieue, explain is to excuse. Right? So no social science, no humanities, right? We just have to have school of engineers and mathematicians to do, you know, so we can have algorithm. And so we, we know that the attack, the state has always been afraid of the institution. We know that totalitarian regime or, or dictatorship, when they arrive, they close the university. The first thing they do, they close the university, right? Because they can be still a place of thinking, of exchanging. But I will say for the France case, but there are I mean other in Europe but the French case, I do think also that French academia has a re- responsibility. I mean 10 15 year, 15 years ago a lot of us say, why don't you have post-colonial studies de- department in your university? No, we don't want post-colonial window degree. If this department were there, I don't think the attack will be as possible today.
0: Francoise, thank you very much for this it was absolutely fascinating.
1: Thank you Kader. Thank you so much. I mean, every each of your questions deserves much more to be continued.